This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company this long weekend. More and more farmers are moving away from producing bulk commodities and just trying to see what they can produce with the crops they grow. It could be anything from biscuits, um, perhaps their own flour, pasta, muesli bars, a muesli blend. The ideas are a little bit endless and open to, I guess, for farmers to really use their own creativity and know what they're producing um, is of a super high quality. I've heard of a few farmers going down this line and it it would be good to see more manufacturing in this country. If you've got an idea or perhaps um, you've really uh, thought about this and and want to maybe try it, maybe text me 0467 922891 and let me know what you're thinking about. I'll tell you a little bit bit, bit more about how industry is trying to help people actually go down that track. And have you heard of ESG or Environmental, Social and Governance and wondered what it actually meant and how it was relevant to you and your property? Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the next 15 minutes or so as well. But first up today, a community-based mental health website is aiming to drop the alarmingly high percentage of farmers who struggle with mental health. Researchers from the University of South Australia have launched a website called Taking Stock, which shares farmers' experiences and gives local support services information on those for people across the country. York Peninsula Broadacre farmer Eldon Oster says the bar has been raised for farmers and busier working days lead to feelings of isolation. I think with most blokes, there's an expectation to be high achievers. And in our industry, we are becoming more and more competitive. We have to be. The benchmarking principle is fantastic, but sometimes it brings expectations to um, young fellas. The stress and the ideals that yeah are, are put on, on us, on farmers and younger farmers, is we need to perform, we need more, we need more. And the, the corporate structure whilst it may be great for production, probably is starting to wane into the capacity of most blokes to be realistic of what I can achieve and what I'm here for. And as primary producers, we are mandated with the most the most highly regarded job on the planet, which is feeding the world. And I think if we've got that value in our mindset about, yes, we actually are feeding the world, not just growing a product, that's the first bit of peace that I seek. But after that, it starts to get murky because you've just got so much stuff going on, and it's it you haven't got time to you haven't got time to actually stand back and have a good look at what what gives you that that reason to get up every morning. And obviously, it differs for each person. But what do you feel as though some of the barriers are when it comes to asking and just generally finding support with those issues? I think good role models. And, and having the capacity to know that you can ask a mate or a neighbour without any judgment, whether you, because you don't know the situation, because you may be lesser educated and you think that, oh, that's a, that's a pretty simple question, but I don't know it. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, pr- bit too proud to ask a question. Most blokes nowadays are starting to realise that, you know what, we're all in this together. 
I've got no secrets. If someone wants wants a recipe for a, for a spray brew or for a for a crop or whatever, I'm more than happy to share share it with them because at the end of the day, we're all going to be better off when we when we're all do, we're all excelling at, at our job. Just talking about farming and your fellow farmers, are you hearing or do you experience yourself some days that feeling of isolation? It's an interesting question. Isolation in our area is it shouldn't be. I think it's isolation as in people are that busy they actually become unintentionally isolated they're in their own zone because they are so busy and because they they think there's an expectation to 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 push push on and push so much harder i think that's where the isolation comes from and all of a sudden they stop and have a look around and go oh struth there's a whole community around me oh hang on i'm part of this community oh struth i've been so busy i've missed something you know i've I've dropped the ball i haven't looked out for a neighbor or i haven't had time and that's where I see relationship in, in community is just paramount that people can actually look out for each other rather than just be so intertwined and so busy in your own, your own stuff. And speaking about some of those supports, you're a part of the men's shed uh, in your local community. What benefits over time have you seen with that? I don't know the fruit of the, of the harvest. All I know is that we're providing an opportunity for blokes to come have a good feed talk with like-minded people that are probably battling a bit and then hearing someone else's struggle, you know, in an interview forum. And pretty much every bloke's got a story to tell and every bloke's got a battle. And, you know, funny thing, when you talk about something and people hear it, but when you talk about it, it actually isn't, doesn't seem as big because you've actually shared that battle. When you keep it to yourself, it's like a little splinter. The longer you, the longer you leave it unattended, it'll get very, very infected. And eventually, until it comes to the surface, it's going to be something that's going to hold you back from being the best you. Air Peninsula farmer Eldon Oster. The University of South Australia's national three-year study showed that the rate of suicide in farmers is nearly 59% higher than people working in other industries. Sociology and social work professor Leah Bryant from UniSA shares the aims of that study and what some of their findings were. So the project was about asking farmers, what is it that you want? What is it that you think could help you and your neighbours and your friends in terms of when you're feeling mentally unwell, but also in terms of reducing distress at the earlier stages? And this is one of the first studies that actually talked to people and asked them, what is it that you want and what is it that we could do together? And then we worked with the communities to try to achieve that, speaking to over 50 farmers in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, and working with three community groups, River in a bluebell, SOS Yorks and Mellow in the Yellows. The findings showed, you know, maybe six things and some of them differed a little bit across each state, but virtually they were very similar. So one of the things was farmers were saying it can be hard to find services. And, you know, if you do, a lot of the language is clinical. Farmers were also saying sometimes when we speak to clinical people, they don't understand the nature of farming. And all of those things can be barriers to farmers actually accessing help. So a free online multimedia resource has been designed to support some of those things you just mentioned. How will this resource work and be hopefully something that really drives down those those suicide figures? Some of the things that you'll find on the webpage are there are four documentaries and this is where the grassroots suicide prevention groups talk about how they came together, the lessons learned in running a group, some of the barriers they faced and the achievements. There are individual stories spread through 
these films as well as what the community groups have done and are doing. And that's to tackle the findings in relation to understanding what people go through, knowing how to communicate and understanding how suicide prevention groups get started. And the reason they get started is often because there's been a suicide in the community. And what these groups are telling us is don't wait for that. If you can get started beforehand and work together and, and have a group set up, then this is a positive way to start getting communication in the community, messages about where to go for wellbeing and peer support happening. University of South Australia's sociology and social work professor Leah Bryant speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. And you can check out the Taking Stock website. You just head to takingstock.community and uh, we'll keep following how that goes. But uh, as I was mentioning, grain growers are looking to get into manufacturing and developing their own brands. And if this is something that you're keen on, you have the opportunity to take part in a value-adding program supported by the Grains Research and Development Corporation. The 12-week program starts in April and it uh, comes after a similar red meat value add program that ran last year. Angus Furley spoke with Amy Colley, a food industry expert involved in delivering the program. So the grains value add program is a wonderful opportunity uh, for grain growers around the country to do a program that can help them develop an idea that they want to explore for a food business product and develop that idea with a whole range of support and industry experts to be able to get that product to market. Okay, so it would be about the grower doing everything, not just the growing, doing the growing, developing a brand, developing a product and marketing it? Absolutely, but with a lot of support. So they might they might be growing a crop um, as a commodity, but in the back of their minds, perhaps they want to develop their own brand, their own product, food product, that they can sell through retail or perhaps sell into food service or even have it as something that people come to the farm to buy. What sort of products do you envisage? So I guess it depends on the crop, but it could be anything from biscuits, um, perhaps their own flour, pasta, muesli bars, a muesli blend. The ideas are a little bit endless and open to... I guess for farmers to really use their own creativity and know what they're producing um, is of a super high quality and that the Australian market is really interested in more domestic homegrown products. So to assist anyone who'd, who'd like to go down this path, there is this, uh, this program that they can participate in? Yes, so the program starts on the 3rd of April and it's a 12-week program. It's predominantly online, but we do bring a cohort of of farmers, so a group of farmers that go online, um, that participate in the program. We bring them together as well as a group, and we, along the way, we open them their ideas um, up to a whole range of industry experts. Does it cost money? It does cost money, but it's fortunately it's a collaboration and supported by GRDC, which is a fantastic opportunity. And the program is delivered by Farmers to Founders and straight to the source. And what we bring um, is industry experts, is coaching on all sorts of aspects of business development. So at the end of those 12 weeks, 
how well equipped should those farmer participants be? Well, I'd say they're very well equipped to take their product to market. We've done this program before with red meat producers. We did this last year. And so it was wonderful to see a group of farmers take their idea all the way to validate it and know that they felt rest assured that they could take a product to market soon after that 12-week program. So has that happened from last year? Have people developed their own products and, and are selling them? Absolutely, they have. Um, They're selling them through the farm gate. They're selling them through retail contacts um, that they've made through the program that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to if they were just doing it on their own. Is this going to suit perhaps a a smaller scale farmer more when they're looking to to value add if they don't have have scale? It could suit a smaller uh, scale farmer, that's right. However, even with larger scale farmers, there's the opportunity to portion um, a a section of their farm and be able to sort of work on that as the value added um, proponent. What's what's the incentive, I suppose, because grain growers are are busy people like all farmers just doing the growing that I mentioned earlier. Uh, This sounds like a lot of extra work what's the incentive to to go down this path I guess one of the biggest incentives is the return on the investment so when you've got a commodity crop you've obviously got a certain price that you're going to gain for that when you're able to value add um, a product then there is an exponential difference in the return. One of our examples here that we've got a packet of um, corn chips, in fact, that for 170 grams, I purchased that packet of corn chips for $11 and they fly out the door. How about on the flip side, the consumer, is their appetite for for buying when there aren't all of those middlemen involved in the supply chain? I believe so. I think, you know, in recent times through COVID, um, we've had a huge rise in domestic tourism and interest in regional travel. So people are coming to areas to understand what is grown in the area and what food and beverage products are produced. So tourism, um, as well as locals, are looking to support regional producers. And in terms of the branding and the marketing, I mean, how, how do farmers differentiate their product and communicate the fact that they're selling and developing their own product and it's not just a, a mass-produced uh, item? So storytelling is a really big part of developing a unique product in the market and that's something that we help with on the program so really understanding who the farmer is where they farm why they do what they do so well so I think that there's a great opportunity to have a connection and showcase the story and their care for the love um, of the land. Amy Colley from Straight to the Source speaking with Angus Verley about the GRD-supported Grains Value Add program. And you can apply for the program if you're interested at the Farmers to Founders website. You can just search for that online. It is 19 minutes past 12. No one in Australia should be dying from anorexia. Four Corners investigates a hidden health emergency. An alien has replaced my daughter. And the Australians suffering in silence. I would prefer to tell someone that I'm addicted to meth. The system is broken. Crisis is the only word you can use. Fading away, Australia's secret battle with eating disorders. That's how she's remembered and that's wrong. Streaming now on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
We'll get to weather next, but uh, in the meantime, references to an emerging corporate acronym, ESG, or Environmental, Social and Governance, are growing among Australian businesses, and it could be set to change the way you farm. But what does it actually mean? Alice Marshall has this report. ESG. You might have heard of it, maybe from your bank manager or perhaps in a conference setting, but let's break down what it could actually mean for your farming business. ESG encases three major areas. Environment, covering factors like soil health and emissions. Social, covering areas like responsible sourcing and employee engagement. And governance, covering food and work safety. It's a small acronym that encompasses some pretty lofty topics. Combank's National Director of Agribusiness, Carmel Onions, says more than anything, ESG is a disruption. It's uh, almost like a business disruption. It's a lot of change, changing expectations for farmers around how they produce and how they sell and how they tell their stories. So it's a lot of change for farmers to deal with. KPMG's leader of corporate ESG strategy, Robert Poole, described the concept as a set of guidelines governing how businesses look after the environment and their people. Uh, Well, I I kind of define it as the big three. That would be emissions reduction, uh, circularity, so how you can recycle things and stop them going into landfill, and then ethical sourcing, so buying it from reputational sources that look after their people and look after the environment themselves, and then how all of that's governed and, and, and decisions are made. The problem, however, is that ESG guidelines have no national or global set of standards and are instead open to interpretation by individual businesses. As of December 2022, all New Zealand farmers are required to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions and must have a written plan in place to manage these emissions by December 2024. Here's Robert Poole again. Um, baselining is probably almost certainly necessary. I can't see any future where we won't have a similar know-your-number kind of strategy in Australia and that will be a base-level reporting. And we've been working on these nutrient calculators, mass balance calculators, for a long, long time in agriculture so that the, the universities and the sectors are starting to build those up. So it's now a matter of just getting those in use getting that adopted through the sector and I'm confident Farmers Ag will be more than capable of um, delivering some of that baseline. I think it's been a a tradition in agriculture that's building in terms of monitoring what happens on farm more and more and as technology started to be more introduced to farms, so everything from the mobile phone through to sensors and satellite data, we definitely have to build up that, that data bank in the most easy, cost-effective way to report up the supply chain. There's absolutely no doubt we'll have to do that. And as I say, that'll come through emissions reporting, it'll come through waste management, river health, animal welfare. I think they're all known to us that those issues um, needed to continue to be improved and reported. But as Carmel says, that's now coming as a more important measure, whether it's because of market access into, say, Europe, uh, whether it's compliance regulatory related or whether it's one of our customers like a retailer saying we need to move with you down this path. So how could an adoption of ESG guidelines within Australian agribusiness impact your bottom line? Here's market analyst and founder of episode three, Matt Dalgleish. On farm perspective, I think it's going to be more of a giving if, if the farmers are able to demonstrate they're fulfilling certain ESG criteria, that they will be able to 
continue to have access to some of those key export markets that we use. So, but I think, you know, as an on-farm level perspective, I feel that it's going to be more a matter of maintaining that kind of important access to all those diverse markets rather than attaching an actual premium for doing or at least satisfying the, these ESG hurdles. Yeah, so you think it'll become, I guess, a, a box-checking exercise to stay in the same markets that you've potentially already been trading into? Yep, that's right, yeah. And th- and then by default, I guess, that if you aren't able, as, a, on, as, as, as an individual farm, able to demonstrate you know, particular criteria that, that satisfies the end client, that, that then you could lose access and, and then that could then follow with a price discount rather than, you know, so you kind of, I guess, by default you're getting less. So, you know, those that are involved aren't necessarily going to get a premium, but you might be, you know, reducing your opportunities um, if you're not able to demonstrate the criteria that's required. Matt Daglish from Episode 3, ending that report from Alice Marshall. And I'm sure that's something that you're going to hear a lot more about, environmental, social and governance. Uh, It could uh, affect the way people farm. It may uh, help you find markets, but from what they're saying there, it might also just help you keep markets if you work towards it. But uh, we'll hear more about that, I'm sure, in the coming months and years. But let across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. There's been a lot of activity on the East Coast over the weekend, probably not so much in South Australia. Australia, though. Jenny Horvat, though, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, can enlighten us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So uh, it was a relatively calm weekend, at least where I was. How did things uh, go across the rest of the state? Yeah, look, it has been relatively calm across the the state across the the weekend, though. We did see a little bit of rainfall around the southeast as we had a bit of a front pass through there. That was kind of Saturday into into Sunday, with a little bit of rainfall falling about the the southeast. But otherwise, it has been pretty calm for most parts about the the state, especially here with me in the metro area. It's been quite a nice um, start to the long weekend, and we are looking at a dry end to the uh, long weekend as well today. So if you are out and about today, it is pretty pleasant conditions throughout the the state and yeah we have fared quite well considering some of the um, severe storms that have been happening over the border on the eastern states so just having a bit of a look things are pretty stable we've got this high pressure system sitting over the Tasman Sea at the moment so it is extending a a ridge across um, across the state there is a bit of a trough out in the far west but we're not expecting any significant weather with that system as well so our high pressure system will pretty much stay in the Tasman up until Tuesday and then it will drift off a little bit further. And we have a couple of sort of cold fronts clipping the, the southeast of the state as we head to the middle to end of the week, but not expecting too much with that as those move through. But just sort of having a bit of a look around um, the state for today, we have seen a little bit of low cloud around some of our southern and western coasts, but that mostly has cleared away. But we are seeing a little bit of um, high cloud drifting across from the west. And that's pretty much taking in um, parts of Air Peninsula at the moment, coming across York Peninsula, seeing a little bit here in the city, and then we'll see that move across the southeast during the day. But we are expecting conditions to remain dry for the state, and those skies remaining pretty clear for northern parts of the state. So we are looking at temperatures ranging sort of um, in the sort of the lower 20s in the in the south there, down to sort of up to 22 at Mount Gambier. But we are seeing temperatures in the mid 30s across the north for today, and we will be expecting another dry mostly sunny day for Tuesday throughout the state warm to hot conditions um, generally across the south and west but grading to very hot in the far north 
west. So we are starting to see a little bit of heat returning after a bit of a reprieve there since autumn has started. But yeah, we'll see that heat hanging around the north of the state for the middle part of the week and then more broadly across the state on the Friday there. So again, on Wednesday, we are looking at that dry dry day. We'll see a little bit more cloud around the south again and we'll start to see those winds tending a little bit more westerly in the south later with that first front sort of clipping clipping the southeast through there and we could see a little bit of ice shower, isolated shower activity following that sort of frontal feature moving through across our southeastern districts on Thursday um, but that will all move off relatively quickly. Only a little chance to see a little bit of shower activity around the lower southeast on the Friday through there but disappearing relatively quickly in the morning and those winds shifting back to the north and those temperatures um, on the rise and very hot across the the north through there. Another change moving across uh, the weekend. A little bit of uncertainty with um, how much rainfall exactly where as it moves across on the weekend. So a bit of a, a watch this space with that one. But otherwise we are looking at dry conditions up until a Thursday, then generally less than a couple of millimetres about our southeastern districts and we could get up to five millimetres about the lower southeast there, Cassie. Thanks for that, Jenny Horvat, with the latest in the weather. And I can imagine these southeast field days, uh, people are hoping there's not too much rain around, although people will be starting to look for rain. In the far west of New South Wales, there could be a thunderstorm in the northeast in the early morning. Otherwise, it'll be mostly sunny. Overnight, we'll get down to 16 to 19 degrees, but the daytime temperature is reaching the low to mid-30s. The lower west and sunny as well. Overnight, down to 13 to 17, but the daytime temperature is reaching the low to mid-30s. I'm Cassie Huff. We've got more to come on. On the Country Hour, it's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company this long weekend. Uh, There's been some wild weather and cyclones around, particularly in the north and down the east coast. Vanuatu has once again copped at the island of Vanuatu. So the Riverland community, which sources a lot of workers from that region, are looking to help out. Crops, I mean like uh, bananas, taros and other things like uh, cassava. That's our main crops that we usually uh, survive. It's our main food. And but at the moment the cyclone uh, destroy everything. Like that's the main food that we rely on. We depend on. And food security is the issue that they are facing. But what about nutritional security? I'm going to get into uh, the difference between the two in the next half hour as well. First, though, Matt Common has the latest in the news headlines. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, police are at the scene of a serious head-on crash in South Australia's southeast. Emergency services were called to the Princess Highway at Reedy Creek around 10 o'clock. Authorities say at least one person is being treated for serious injuries. The Mayor of Berkshire Council in flooded northwest Queensland says it could be weeks before road access is restored. Record flooding is continuing to devastate the outback community of Burketown, where at least 37 homes have been inundated. And the partner of injured South Australian jockey Jamie Carr will replace her in the Adelaide Cup at Morfordville today. Carr is being treated for concussion after falling in a race at Flemington on Saturday. Ben Mellon will take her ride on the well-fancied top-weight Persan in the Adelaide Cup. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, Australia's largest wine region is going to be showcased at two of the largest wine events in the world. Now, the Riverland is usually associated with commercial wine, but recent initiatives have uh, been keen for wine drinkers to see it as a geographic region in the same way Barossa or Coonawarra regions are, for example. And uh, Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven can explain some of these upcoming events. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. So there's two major international wine events that Riverland Wine in particular is going to be showcased at. What are they? Right, so the first one is in Dusseldorf from the 19th to 21st of this, this month, so this coming week, uh, and that's ProWine, which is more than 60,000 visitors uh, visiting Dusseldorf, and that includes the major wine buyers from, uh, Europe, uh, from Europe, from the USA, from Canada and from Asia. So that's a really good opportunity to uh, potentially expand the export audiences for our Riverland wines. Um, there's going to be a, a branded booth uh, at Dusseldorf, uh, and there's going to be five uh, brands represented, uh, 68 Roses, Oxford Landing, Styles Reach, Malia Estate, and Unico Zillo. So that's a, a really exciting event that's coming up this coming week. And then in May, Riverland producers will also be on show at Vine Expo Singapore. So there's going to be a specific Riverland branded booth uh, in Singapore, and that is the most influential wine and spirits trade fair in the entire Asia-Pacific region. So again, a really good opportunity to uh, to feature Riverland wines and help to support them uh, through, as you said, this is a, a challenging time, uh, but there's a number of different things that are happening to support Riverland wine, um, and these are two of them. When you think of branded areas, you might think of Barossa and its Shiraz or Kunawara and its Cab Sav. What is being showcased as part of the Riverland? Because it's more known for its bulk wine production, but the, I know the industry there is really trying to change that image. Look, they are trying to change it. And, for example, Oxford Landing uh, is talking about how people who, who drink Riverland wine, they know it's quality uh, and they know that it's uh, well-priced and that they can deliver other things that perhaps uh, than some of the other brands. But one of the things that we really need to get over, I think, is what you've just referred to, uh, that kind of reputational issue, whereas there's a lot of um, fantastic things about some Riverland wines. It's got so many different varieties because of the different microclimates and soils. There's a real diversity. And that's, I think, something that maybe uh, not everyone is appreciating so far, and this is one of the opportunities to get that message out there. We've spoken a little on this program about the Riverland Uprising program. It's been designed to boost the demand and sales of wine from that region. Beyond this promotion at these events, what else is the government supporting through the Riverland Uprising? Yeah, so the Riverland Uprising uh, includes uh, $25,000 government grants and that's uh, what is supporting some of these events that we're talking about here. Uh, and funding's been provided is through Project 250, which some of your listeners might have heard of before, which is a partnership with the South Australian Wine Industry Association. And it provides, um, I think it's about a quarter of a million dollars until 2026 for wine industry development initiatives. So that's an important part, um, as is some of the things that we've uh, launched recently, such as the um, uh, the wine ambassadors in uh, Singapore, which um, Minister Champion has been talking about. And of course, the thing that's uh, going through my department is the blueprint that we're doing for the whole Riverland region. So there's lots of different things that we're doing because everyone knows there's not a, you know, a single fix to the challenges that are, are being faced at the moment. And this is an opportunity to address some of those challenges, but also to really promote some of the fantastic things that are happening in the Riverland. The government's also established the South Australian Wine Ambassadors Club. What is this and what are they going to do? 
Right, so that's about connecting local suppliers with the leading importers across our six of the key markets in the Asia-Pacific region. Again, it comes back to that diversification of our export markets. Uh, and so there's going to be a number of events uh, throughout the year. Uh, and I think Minister Champion is at one of those uh, in the very near future. And uh, that is about being able to make sure that those export markets do know the diversity of our wines and have an opportunity uh, to experience them and, uh, you know, and potentially then take them up. Well, hopefully all these initiatives do make a difference because uh, all the wine regions, but uh, the Riverland in particular, are feeling the pinch this year. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have a, a nice rest of the long weekend. My pleasure. Thanks. You too. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven speaking there. Hopefully they're really successful events and able to showcase what the Riverland is doing with wine as well. We'll head to Vanuatu now because a Riverland labour hire business is raising money to support communities affected by the recent cyclones that have affected Vanuatu. More than $11,000 has been donated so far, which is going to be used to buy bags of rice to provide immediate relief after many of the staple food crops were destroyed on the island. Eliza Berlage caught up with Leanne Liu, who started the fundraiser, and some of the new Vanuatu workers she employs. Hi, I'm uh, Roger. I'm from uh, Vanuatu in the island of Tana. We are here in a currency program. We are here under BLL contract, contractor uh, for fruit picking. Within the last few weeks, there's been a, a number of cyclones in, in Vanuatu. How has this affected your, your families and your communities back at home? Yeah, uh, it's uh, very challengeful. Like it's first time ever we had a su- two cyclone at in one week, so it damaged uh, a lot of things, crops and houses, many things. But their families are okay. Only the crops and some of our buildings have been destroyed. And yeah, it's very challengeful, challenge for us in this season this year. And you mentioned a, a lot of crops damaged as well as properties. What sort of crops have been damaged and, and what does that mean for people's food supply? Yeah, uh, like crops, I mean like uh, bananas, taros and other things like uh, cassava. That's our main crops that we usually uh, survive. We usually eat it for like usually eat it. It's our main food. And But at the moment the cyclone uh, destroys everything. Like that's the main food that we rely on, we depend on. Yeah. That must be really hard to, to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very hard hard times, yeah, ever uh, for us in this like this this season. And do you know how long it might take to be able to rebuild and replant the gardens? Yeah, it takes about uh, three months for the quick crops, like potatoes. Yeah, another and for the rest it takes about a year for us to wait for yeah to harvest again. And so I understand um, that you guys are, are working with the company, you're, the contractor company that you're working for to, to help send some food and relief back home. Yeah, can you tell me about what, what you're working on or how you're hoping to support family back at home? Uh, with uh, my co- our contractor, PLL, he's helping us for the, some of the, the money to contribute some money to help uh, my families, support them in rice by buying the rice and we had a lot of supporters already they donate the money we are very sure but we're very proud of and yeah like we so thankful it's an history ever something happened like that in Australia in one of the contractors like that so we are very appreciated and our family back home they very appreciate what our contractors and some of the people the helpers the relatives that they have been in the community they have been helped in donating the money so we really appreciate it 
and every family back home, they really appreciate it. And how much supplies are, are they needing to, to help? Uh, we need like uh, rice. We, we are hoping to help families back home about 200 uh, pack, pack rice to help them to get started uh, while eating and while waiting for the crops. And Leanne, uh, you, you work with PLL contractors and you're helping organise with the GoFundMe. Um, yeah, so because we're the contractors and our workers live in Tanna, we, I thought I'd start this up so that you know, we can get the food directly to them and, and fast as well. And um, because we work on many properties in the Riverland, we, I reached out to, to people and, and uh, we've had a lot of supporters so far. And it's really great and it's pretty overwhelming that, you know, you do a good job on the property and then they just help you when you just request a little bit of a donation to, to help with these um, terrible cyclones. And yeah, how much has been, been raised so far? Uh, so far we're about at $11,500 and that could probably buy about um, 300 bags of rice so far. Yeah, and a bag of rice could last a family about two weeks. So... Um, yeah, we will try and supply as much as we can so that they can have a bit of um, relief. Yeah, straight away, and then waiting for the, wait for their crops to to replant and so they can harvest them. Hopefully, they are able to get back. Uh, well, their crops will thrive again soon after being damaged by those storms. That was PLL contractors Leanne Lou speaking with Eliza Berlage and uh, you can contact Leanne at PLL if you would like to find out more. But while we're talking about uh, food security and uh, I guess concerns about uh, where people are getting their food from, knowing how to secure food for the growing population is an issue that many investors are weighing in on but one expert says he's actually more concerned about nutritional security than food security. Victor Friedberg is the co-founder of New Epic Capital and the chairman of Foodshock Global and he says that in order to go forwards we need to go backwards. He says it's about it's about combining indigenous knowledge with science to secure nutritional food that can also work as medicine. Well, I've become quite passionate about this idea of nutritional security um, and thinking about it differently than food security. So how do we make sure that everybody on the planet, you know, as the population grows and we're dealing with climate change and everything else that we're dealing with, that everybody has access to the nutrition, not just the food, but the nutrition that's going to help them lead productive lives it's all important which seems like something that's an obvious want but achieving that practically can be quite difficult what barriers do you see at the moment that we're facing well i think the greatest barrier is our own mindsets i think people think that if they're eating and they have access to food that they are getting nutrition and that's not the case and it's becoming increasingly less the case So I think part of it is just our mindsets of being able to understand what our bodies need, what food is, and how to make purchases for yourself and your family that is going to nourish you. But we need to move to a better way of eating, growing, and distributing it, and that's what I'm devoted to as a person. 
and obviously there has been a lot of conversation, there will be a lot of conversation around investment in this topic, but really where should money be going to make a difference in agribusiness that will move towards solving that uh, issue, as you just mentioned, nutritionist food that's also affordable and sustainable for the future? Well, this is going to get pretty nerdy. Is that okay? (laughs) So soil is the start of it all. If their nutrition isn't in the soil, it's not going to get into the plant and it's not going to get into the cow or anything else. And then you're not going to be able to consume it. So everything for me starts with the soil. And living soil is very different than the soil we have now. Living soil, you see it and you know it right? It's got that sort of blackish brown color. It looks alive. There are things rolling around in there. A lot of soil in the world is not like that anymore because we've damaged it to the point where, yes, it can grow crops, but it's no longer truly living. So I think investment and certainly a lot of the um, funds that were on stage here is making a lot of investments into soil health. So I think it starts there. And then, you know, for what I'm passionate about, what I spoke of here today is about this food health nexus. So how do we unlock the things in food that are gonna make us more healthy, can be both a therapeutic as well as a preventative medicine, so to speak. And the truth is, we know very little about food. We eat it, we've been doing it since the dawn of human time, but we actually don't know what's in it from a molecular compound perspective. And there are organizations and companies now in the world that are unlocking that. And so five years from now, 10 years from now, you're gonna see products that are food products that if you're battling cancer or you're you're a diabetic or you're having early stage Alzheimer's, you're gonna start eating foods that have certain chemical compounds in it that are gonna change the trajectory of your life. And that's incredibly exciting and optimistic view of where we're going. We're talking about food that's going to be farmed and farms just like anything else. The difference is that we're actually going to know what's in it. So if you're eating ginger, right now we don't know all of the compounds that are in ginger or in turmeric or in garlic or whatever. We're going to use data processing. We're going to use analytics. We're going to use all the tools of technology and we're going to figure out what's in there. We're not going to grow it any differently, or if we are, we're just going to optimize certain aspects of it. It's still garlic. You're going to still pay what you pay for garlic in the supermarket. You're just now going to know that eating it in certain doses or in certain ways are going to help you reach different sort of health goals. And I I think that's the difference. Victor Friedberg, co-founder of New Epic Capital and chairman of Food Shot Global, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. Now, uh, food security is not a particular concern in Australia. Sometimes the supply chains get in the way, but new data shows the production value of the horticulture industry in this country has grown by 6 
billion in the last decade. Hort Innovation released their latest edition of the Horticulture Statistics Handbook that covers 75 crops across fruit, vegetables, nuts and green life. And the numbers show growth in both production values and volumes across the industry, despite many producers, however, facing short-term challenges in recent years. Annie Brown spoke with Lucy Noble, the Data and Insights Supply Specialist for Hort Insights and Innovation. In terms of volume, when we look at the long term, it is a positive story, and that is that the volume is increasing, increasing across the board. So those four categories of fruit, nut, veg and amenity have all increased in volume rather consistently over the last 10 years. Volume, this latest reporting period, did come back to the vegetables, and that's no surprise given that supply has really been squeezed as a result of the flooding. Um, we're hearing, obviously, more recently about shortages in some of those key vegetable crops like potatoes. And the full extent to that has not been realised yet, so won't be necessarily fully reflected in this handbook. But we're seeing volume growth over all of our commodities. Some really impressive standouts are things like um, in almonds, where we've seen plantings 20 years ago were 6% of what they are today. So in terms of a reflection on looking at volume, we're seeing some really impressive growth in key, um, particularly export commodities, when we look at volume over the last 10 years. Yeah, and looking at the export stats there for Victoria in particular, almonds is the biggest thing that we, we export out of Victoria at the mm, moment. Absolutely. and I mean, in terms of pulling its weight, Victoria is responsible for producing 49% of fresh horticulture produce um, that's exported. So there is a lot of value coming out of um, Victoria in terms of horticulture production value, particularly in those key export markets. Almonds are obviously a large player. It's no surprise that things like table grapes out there and then not far behind is a lot of those stone fruits as well. So the nectarines, plums, um, cherries, peaches as well. And to go back a little bit now to, to look at values and the growth that you've seen there in the last 10 years, what, what can you tell us about that and what's been happening there? Yeah, I mean, well, it's one thing to say that volumes come up, but if you don't see your value track, then we've obviously got to be an issue there. But thankfully, that's a story that we kind of don't have to deal with because there's been so much growth within our domestic channel, um, but also within that, those export markets. So if you look at the moment, we're, we're exporting around 11.5% of the volume of Australian produce um, to our international trade markets as well, which is really impressive because as, a, as an island nation, we're very much contained within our, our markets. So we supply most, if not all, of our fresh produce. But what we're really seeing is the growth in the last 10 years is being particularly pushed by the, the growth in exports. It is important to note that the information in these statistics cover the last 10 years up until the 2001-2022 financial year, not including any of the weather events that have occurred in the last seven months. Michael Coote is the CEO of Ausveg, the peak industry body for the Australian vegetable and potato industries. And he says that while the long-term growth has been impressive, in the short term, the industry has struggled against weather events, labour shortages and the high cost of production. Personally, I was quite surprised to see the vegetable category growing by 13% from $4.9 billion to $5.5 billion in production value for the, for the FY22 financial year. Um, I guess coming out of COVID, lots of people are still eating uh, fresh Aussie produce and needing staple vegetables. So that's probably driven some of that pricing, uh, that, that increase in industry value. Uh, however, the total value of the industry doesn't uh, always tell the whole story. Industry growth uh, at a macro level is one thing. However, our industry has been really struggling over the last, you know, 20, 12, 24 months with, uh, you know, weather events, higher production costs and labour shortages. 
which you know you would think have uh, has seen a reduction in the, the volumes of fresh vegetables making it onto the market, uh, but the higher uh, price doesn't necessarily reflect the total cost that a, that a grower incurs to grow and supply a product for Australian consumers. One um, particular crop in, that was pointed out in these the key findings in this it was about the leafy salad salad vegetables, uh, which also reached new production volumes and increasing by 5% uh, just last year, marking the highest year of supply of fresh leafy salad vegetables. Um, can you tell me a bit about what's going on with yeah, leafy salad vegetables at the moment? Yeah, look, the, the industry has been growing and, and obviously grew by 5% in the last financial year, which is, uh, which is quite impressive given, um, given some of the challenges that sector's faced. Uh, I think that with food service coming back on um, after COVID um, as a category and a channel for growers to supply uh, probably has driven quite a bit of that increase. Um, exports are coming on in a small way, um, but a number of crops, have, you know, have seen you know good good uh, increases in that period. You know, the onion industry um, it, it grew to a new value of 249 million. Um, you know, our, our humble carrot exports, you know, in the last 10 years have grown from 51 million to 92 million, um, and and continue to be the star performer for for vegetable exports. So. Whilst we can also look at individual individual crops and how they're faring, um, it can be a mixed bag amongst the um, you know amongst different different vegetable products. The long term trend is growth. You know we've got population growth, we've got export export market growth. Uh, you know new new channels coming online all the time, which is really great. So it means there's markets that growers can play in. But we need to ensure that they remain viable and and, and primarily the domestic market, Australian consumers. Uh, where um, you know 90% of Australian vegetables are still consumed, so the, you know the focus for our growers is really on maintaining supply to to feed Australia uh, and, and 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 remaining profitable even in difficult years. Mark Coote, CEO of Ausveg, uh, speaking with Annie Brown. It's seven minutes to one on digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. The Cup is running today, so I thought we might finish the show with a bit of a look at horse racing. And amid a shortage of workers across the the agriculture sector, I should say, the stud breeding industry is urging young people from across the country to join their industry to help fill gaps as well in that industry. Thoroughbred Breeders Australia Fast Track Program is now in its sixth year and was developed in response to the industry's staff shortages. This is a 12-month traineeship where students work with a stud farm while studying a Certificate 3 in horse breeding, which is a nationally recognised formal qualification. Tess O'Connor, who grew up in Melbourne, developed a love of her horses early in life and that led her to a career working with animals through the Fast Track Training Scheme. I don't know where the love of horses came from. It just appeared probably in my early teenage years. My grandparents had a dairy farm and I really loved going down there and I loved animals and my dad, he caved when I was in high school and gave me horse riding lessons. So we'd go, we'd drive an hour and a half down to horse riding every Tuesday and I just, it grew from there. And so that was always in the back of my mind. But I went through school and then I studied a Bachelor of Agricultural Science at Melbourne University. And coming out of that, I didn't see many options other than a veterinarian that included horses. And I really, horses were my passion, so I wanted to go down that line. And I guess I applied for jobs that were a little bit out of my league. I was quite naive and I just had no experience behind me. I'd worked in real estate for a few years during uni. So 
through all that searching, the Fast Track program appeared and it gave me everything I didn't have, mostly the hands-on experience for 11 of the 12 months of the course, which I think was very vital for me at that period because hands-on experience really gets you places in the industry whilst also gaining a formal qualification. So fully funded and yeah, I couldn't say no. So I applied and was lucky enough to be accepted on and gain a position in that year's intake and it's gone from there and I've been in the industry nearly three years later. So, I believe this fast track program also resulted in you heading overseas to Ireland. Correct, yeah. So when I finished the program in 2021, I was really passionate and wanted to keep learning as much as I could and the TBA along with the Nolan family, it's the Basil Nolan Junior Scholarship that they fund for you to go over and complete the Irish National Stud course. So Cecilia O'Gorman, who ran the Fast Track program at the time, really put me forward and said, did you want to apply for it? And yeah, I applied for that. It was a really nice, easy application. Um, got to speak to the Nolan family and I was lucky enough to go over there. It's six months and it was it's taken my knowledge. It's gone tenfold. We went over there. There's 30 other students from around the world. You work on a stud. You have lectures every afternoon and it's so much fun. You learn so much and I definitely wouldn't be where I currently am without both those courses. On a practical level, you said there's a lot of hands-on experience. Tell us about that. The Fast Track program really aims to get those individuals that most have never touched a horse or have a passion for racing or just want to see what it's like, but then you have others that have a lot of experience. So it really ranges, but the Fast Track program, they bring you in for a month at the start of the course to the TAFE campus in Scone, and they give you all the hands-on experience from catching a horse to caring for it, feeding it, rugging it, all those basic skills. So no matter what skill level you are, you're ready to enter the workforce after that month, which I think is really important for those that might know what they're doing or might have never touched a horse. So it brings you all up to speed so when you get on farm, you know a bit of what you're doing and you can get sent out on those jobs and not be a complete beginner from the start. So it really gives you those, I guess, foundational skills along with the theory aspect to really get on farm and be a vital team member. This program was developed in response to industry staffing shortages. Is that still the case? Definitely. If you talk to any manager or someone high up in the industry that's really seen the industry progress over the years, the massive issue they have are staffing shortages. So it's really amazing to see um, studs get behind the TBA and really get young people because you are asking a bit of people, especially on the studs, to move away probably from home and into a rural setting. So you have to really look for those passionate people that really want to be there. So I think it's really amazing that all these studs are getting behind and there's so many other initiatives coming out with staffing shortages and getting young people. Because I found when I was at university, I had no idea that these programs existed. So I think they're really trying to reach those younger demographics to really get them into the industry at a young age and then fall in love hopefully and keep going from there. So just taking a step back here, Tess, not many people I would imagine from metropolitan areas would be studying agriculture at university. What Was it just your love of horses that put you in that position? Yeah, I finished school and I had no idea. I spoke to my careers counsellor. I was actually going to go into criminology and psychology. I was accepted into that, so I was going to complete that. But I, I remember vividly Dad sitting there and Mum and being like, she loved horses. And the lady was like, look at this new course that's come out. It's really amazing. And I think it had a lot of different avenues from ag economics to soil science to the animal side, which I was obviously more geared towards. So I think that was kind of up and coming at Melbourne Uni. There's not that much on offer in Melbourne. I think a lot more in Queensland. 
but yeah, it's just a falling. I wanted to work with animals, and I didn't really see myself working in other areas. So I thought I'd go for it, um, see how I go, and the course was amazing. And yeah, it's taken me here. So. Stud Hand at Godolphin and the Hunter Valley, Tess O'Connor speaking there with Jane McNaughton. And Fast Track is open to anyone in Australia who is over 18, regardless of their horse experience. So uh, check it out. That's all we have time for, though. More coming on your ABC local radio. Sonia Feldoff is once again out and about. It's coming up to one o'clock.